we've done this before. A call to worship. Um, you know, we, we, we worship. It's just, it's just what we do. If you listen to people talk, you, you'll hear people say, oh, I love that restaurant. Or did you try this food at that place? Or can you believe how good that coffee was? Or did you see that guy hit that game-winning shot to, to, at the buzzer? Or um, did you see how cool that outfit? I mean, whatever. We're, we're constantly ascribing worth and value to things. We're, we're praising things. So much of our conversation is actually ascribing praise and worth to the things that we love. And, and that's, that's okay. That's good to do. So long as the ultimate thing that we're ascribing praise is to the, is to the giver of all those things. Right? Don't confuse um, the gift with the giver. Okay? And so we, we praise and we worship. Um, but worshiping the Creator is not natural to us. In fact, it's unnatural to us. That was part of what the fall did. As sin entered our hearts, we opted, instead of God, we opted to worship His creation. And so every time we gather together for worship, we're coming together, and and right off the bat, there will be a call to worship that helps orient our minds and our hearts to the worship of triune God. And so you have there in, in your order of worship this call to worship, which I am going to read. And uh, following it, I will pray, and then we will, when I say, and, and, and uh, we pray, as you taught us to pray, I will jump into this Lord's Prayer that you have printed there, and we will recite that together in unison, okay? So here's the call to worship. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the way in which you've worked in this, in this group, in our midst. That you have um, organized a, a variety of folks from a variety of backgrounds. And you've brought us together. And we pray that you would help us to be transformed together as we worship you uh, week in and week out. And uh, we thank you um, for your gifts to us. Help us even now to kind of learn how to do this well together. We pray these things uh, in Jesus' name, and we pray as you taught us to pray, praying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so let's, uh, let's remain standing. Um, you have next a, a confession um, of sin. And so we're called to worship God, but there's this big fat problem for us. 
And that is our sin, which alienates us from God. It makes it impossible for us to even worship God as He is. But Christ has brought His mercy to us, which has broken down the hostility that exists between us and God and enables us to worship Him. Now, um, and I don't, I don't want to be critical here, but you know, I, I can remember visiting a church, Sarah, we moved to a new town, and we visited a very popular church in the area, and it was a baptismal service that we attended, and so lots of Christians were being baptized, and they would share their testimony, um, and I remember one guy, very, there were very dramatic testimonies, by the way, I mean, one guy had, had a serious drug addiction, and um, because of Jesus, he was transformed, he no longer had drug problems, there was another family that had all sorts of marital um, brokenness, and they, they came to faith, and God uh, transformed their marriage, and their marriage was like really healthy and really strong, and it was testimony after testimony of this radical transformation as a result of their faith in Christ, and God can do that, like praise God, people are broken from addictions all the time because of the Spirit's work in them, but um, if a, if a conversion is expressed in this way, I had all these problems, I became a Christian, and now I have zero problems. That's not the Christian understanding of, of the Christian life. Um, I'm reading a biography right now of St. Augustine, and one of the things I appreciate, is by a guy named James Smith, uh, who's it's very well written, um, but he, he quotes... Augustine is saying, St. Augustine, after his conversion, I struggle every day. And so, if, if we as a church present conversion as like the instant solution to all your problems, we're, that's sort of misrepresenting the promises of Christ. Because you could actually say, and this is one of the, a quote from James Smith, um, conversion doesn't solve temptation, Rather, it heightens temptation because it creates resistance. Before you come to Christ, you're living with the course of this world. And your life is, is just flowing down that river of this world. But when you turn to Christ, all of a sudden, you're working up against the, the, the rapids, up against the flow, which creates a rub in your life that did not exist before. You've all of a sudden inherited challenges that you didn't have before. And this is Christian sanctification. And it includes an ongoing struggle with sin. And here's the thing. As we confess that sin, we fall deeper and deeper into the, the grace of God. And that's the means by which we're transformed. And saved entirely from the power of sin in, in our lives. So with that, we have a corporate confession. This order is a little different than you may be used to. Corporate confession followed by a silent confession, followed by an assurance of pardon. Okay? So let's, let's uh, corporately confess our sins together. Holy God, you said that you are light of the world, yet we still refuse to let you into the darkest places of our lives. You said that you are the good shepherd, but we fail to follow where you lead. We are sheep that have gone astray. You said that you are the bread of life, but we seek out other things to satisfy us. You said that you are the way, but we often make our own paths. You said that you are the truth, 
but we find ways to deceive ourselves and others. You said that you are life. Forgive us and help us to embrace the mercy, forgiveness, and grace that you offer us so that we can have an abundant life with you. Amen. Let's silently confess our sins together. Hear now this assurance of pardon. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Now, we have experienced in Christ peace with God, vertical peace, and we've talked about this in Ephesians, which spells out for us a horizontal peace that can only be attained in Christ. Um, And so we have what uh, some traditions is common. If you've been in a Catholic uh, church or maybe even Episcopalian, Lutheran, some Presbyterian churches do what is called the passing of the peace. And it flows out of our forgiveness um, from God that we now pass the peace along that we have with God to one another. You know, every, a lot, there's a lot of talk about community. Um, we, we, we long for it. We want it. And it always has something that any given community has something that they're organized around. Okay? Well, the claim of the gospel is that the only thing that can truly unite people supernaturally is Christ. Right? And so we, we pass along the peace of Christ. And so here's what we're going to do. Just a moment. You will, um, it's, it's similar to a time of greeting, shake the other person's hand next to you and say, peace of Christ be with you. Peace of the Lord. And then the response is, and also with you. You can say, peace of Christ with you. The peace of the Lord be with you. Just the peace of Christ. And then once you do that, you're welcome to, if you don't know the person, say, my name is, and introduce yourself. <laughs> then it becomes a pretty common uh, greeting at that point. But we're sharing the peace of Christ. And I know that may feel a little awkward, but here's the claim. Here's my belief. We're reminding ourselves uh, of what true community is built on, and it is the gospel. It's the peace of Christ. And that's what we're organizing ourselves around, and we're going to remind ourselves that every week as we do this. So that's the plan. Offer the peace of Christ to one another, and then we will, our music uh, uh, worship leaders will kind of bring us back together following that. And I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Corbin. All right. Um, this so it says sermon. This isn't exactly a sermon. It's more of a Bible study. And you 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 read that text, you may think, well, this is kind of a weird text to be starting things off with. Um, we've got teachers in here. Uh, let's see, yeah, Jake and Stephanie and Maggie, there we are, Jessica, teacher, 
Let's imagine that your principal said something like this. Here's what you need to do for us. Go to your class and say, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep seeing, but don't really see. Make your class dull, their ears heavy, blind their eyes so that they don't see and hear and understand, and so that no transformation takes place. That's what I want you to do. That would be bizarre, wouldn't it? But that's what Isaiah's, this is Isaiah's call, his commission from the Lord. Isaiah chapter 6. We, we we're familiar with the first half of the chapter, but this is the second half, and, and it's, it's a little uh, perplexing. One uh, Jewish commentator, it's so strange and hard to place, said this. He said, Isaiah did his call. He, he performed his prophetic ministry. Nobody listened to anything he said. And so he goes back into his scroll and he scribbles this in real quick to make it look like it was a shining success. Like, nailed it. That's, that is like, I mean, that's problematic for a number of reasons, that interpretation. But that's how some people have dealt with this, right? I mean, that, that obviously compromises the integrity of the, of the scriptures, of the text. So that's not a good answer. A guy named Greg Beal, a scholar, a New Testament scholar, has written a whole book on this problem right here. And he says, every time this kind of language pops up, he calls, it sens- he calls it sensory malfunction language, right? Because they've got their senses are not functioning. They're heavy ears, but they don't hear their eyes. Anytime sensory malfunction language pops up in the scriptures, you know what's right next to it? Idolatry. It's idolatry. That is the big problem in the book of Isaiah, and really throughout Israel's history, is idol worship. And just to give you an example, if, if, you're, if you have a Bible, flip over to Isaiah 42, uh, chapter 42, beginning at verse 17. It says, uh, Isaiah 42, 17, they are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols who say to metal images, you are our gods. And then look, sensory malfunction language, hear you deaf, look you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, Israel, right? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send. Who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as the servant of the Lord? There it is. And I, we could give a lot more examples throughout Isaiah where um, sensory malfunction and idolatry are, are like hand in hand. And the clearest example of this is Psalm 115. Psalm 115. Psalm 115, uh, beginning at verse 4. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. The noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. 
feet, but they don't walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. They're just these lifeless little statues that sit there. And then look, verse 8. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Right? This is, this is the point. You become like the thing that you worship. If you worship a dead, lifeless idol, you will die. It will be slow. It will, be, it, it will begin just kind of feeling like a numbness towards life. And, and, and also, let me say this. You could look at all of the Ten Commandments. Well, you could look at them as all flowing out of the first commandment. You shall worship the Lord your God. And the second commandment is no idols, right? But if we could get that first commandment right and devote our worship to the Lord, all the others would flow. This was Luther's case, and a lot of of others have said the same thing. But that's not what we do. We are obsessed with taking a piece of creation and exalting it up to the status of creator so that it becomes an ultimate thing. And we begin to worship it. Now, I realize probably none of you have a literal idol, like a golden calf, in your kitchen. Um, But we do struggle with idols of the heart. An ultimate thing. A good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. So maybe maybe for you, um, you are serving the gods of beauty. And they get you up at ungodly hours in the morning and get you out to the workout facility. They have you eating like a little rabbit in a garden all the time. They have you, um, they have you doing all of this work, do, doing all of this stuff. And here's the thing. Over the course of a life where you're serving these gods, you become, you become numb. You become increasingly dissatisfied with your own beauty. Uh, you, be, you can't see beauty in others. You get jealous, right? It makes you incapable of properly enjoying and loving the very thing that you're pursuing. Um, another example, the gods of sex. Um, pornography is an epidemic. And I've seen research that, that says that if that for um, 18 years, excessive pornographic use actually leads to impotency, right? Among young men, like 18 age and 20-somethings, are, are struggling with this as a result of the very thing that they were pursuing has been lost. Maybe it's uh, pa- parenting. Um, you... You, you, you love your kids, rightfully so, and then you begin to sort of vicariously try to live your life through them. And slowly but surely you begin to um, smother them and push them in directions they don't want to go because you want for them what they don't even want themselves. And here's the result of that. By smothering them, you, you actually, the end result is that you, you push them away from you. And you lose the very thing that you're after. And that's what, that's what this false worship does. 
everything that we're pursuing in false worship eventually eludes us until we finally die from that false worship. Let's, let's flip over to the New Testament. Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Okay, beginning at verse 14. And let me say this before we start reading. Jesus has just fed 4,000 people miraculously. Um, that's a big deal, right? To just, I mean, we have, we, thousands of people are fed. And then, verse 14. They had, so they're getting on a boat, and they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And then verse 15, Jesus cautions them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And so Jesus begins to teach them, right? And they began discussing with one another the fact that they have no bread. So Jesus is teaching them, and they, they're like, oh, guys, we didn't bring any food for this trip. And Jesus was aware of this, and he said, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you, oh, listen to this. Look at this, this is language. Do you, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Like referring to when he just fed 4,000 people, right? I just, we just did that, guys. I, we can handle 12. I can handle all 12, 12 of you. In verse 19, when I broke the five loaves, 5,000, he already fed 5,000 people um, before that. Okay, so here's the point. The disciples themselves, because of their own false worship um, and, and, and competing, just their, their own blindness and sin, are not seeing what Jesus is doing. Okay, now, next, next, next passage, verse 22. This is the healing of the blind man. So they come to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And Jesus took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And verse 24, and uh, the blind man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Now, this is interesting that Jesus would even ask, like, you know, did it work? I mean, he's been, he, he's, he's brought people back to life remotely. He's, there was a demon-possessed man just a few chapters ago that was out of control. He was breaking chains that were binding him and he's running around just like this madman and when Jesus shows up he he runs to him like an obedient golden retriever and falls down at his feet and begs for mercy he's demon possessed and Jesus uh, execute uh, exercises the demon with a one word command so Jesus has done some incredible things now all of a sudden he's got this blind man but it's a difficult miracle it appears right did it work do you see anything and then Jesus, verse 25, laid his hands on his eyes again. He opened his eyes and his sight was restored. And all of a sudden he sees everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home saying, uh, do not even enter the village. Okay, so uh, second attempt, 
is successful. So here's the question. Either Jesus is doing this as almost like an acted parable, or he's not quite sure how to handle this one. And I think it's the former, right? Jesus is teaching us something through the way that he's performing this miracle. And what is he teaching us? Well, if we keep looking, I'm going to explain. We won't read it, but the very next passage, you know what Peter does? It's big time. He confesses Jesus as Lord. All of a sudden, the guy that's not seeing, Peter, sees. Right? You are the Christ. And then, and then what happens next? Peter doesn't see. Because you know what happens? Jesus foretells his death and resurrection, and Peter says, may it never be, Lord. And, and remember what Jesus says? Get behind me, Satan. Step back. Step aside. You're, you're, you're standing in the way of the kingdom of God. Like, so Peter doesn't see. And then, not long after that, Peter sees again at the transfiguration, the glorified Christ. Okay? You see, you see the parallel, right? Jesus is working on the disciples gradually. And over the course of, the go- of Mark's gospel, he is going to open their eyes more and more to understand, to see, to see Jesus. To see Jesus, to exalt him. And, you know, I mentioned it earlier about the conversion. Uh, when we reduce you know, kind of the event in the Christian life to conversion. And once conversion happens, we're all taken care of. Um, that, that's problematic because it doesn't reflect Jesus' understanding of, of how Christian growth happens. It's gradual. And here, here's a second danger with that kind of thinking. It makes every Christian in, that, in those churches clam up when they encounter all kinds of sin. And they keep it deep within and it festers, and it builds, and it slowly kills them if, if it's not dealt with. But it's so hard to deal with because they're supposed to be perfect. They were already converted. Okay? So this whole example highlights the, the gradual work that is Christian transformation. So what happens when we see Jesus? That's what we want. That's, that's, by the way, that's why are we getting together every week to worship? The answer is really simple. To see Jesus. See Jesus. We want eyes that see, ears that hear what he has to say to us. We want to taste him, feel him, his presence, all of those things. We want a, a, all of our senses firing for Jesus. And worship does that. Hopefully over the course, just even this practice time, We've, we've sang songs about Jesus. We've confessed our sins to the Father um, and have been forgiven in Jesus. We've, we've been called to worship only on the basis of Jesus. Jesus is central to everything that we do. So when we see Jesus, what happens? Look at, look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 18. This is the last passage that we're going to consider. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 18. Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, okay, so nothing's standing in the way of our seeing, beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus, 
are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So here's the point. As we behold Jesus, we become like Him. If, if creation and the, the uh, enticements of creation become our Lord, well, the principle of the universe is this. You will become like those things. And as the Scriptures, the whole Testament makes clear, you, you, will, you will be on a slow track towards your own death. You will die. You will start feeling numb, and then everything will just sort of break down, and you will end up dying. But if you worship the Lord, you, the living God, you become alive. All of you, you start functioning properly and you're transformed from one degree of glory to another. So why get together every week to worship Jesus together so that we can be like Jesus? That's what happens to us over time. That's what Paul's claim is here. Let me uh, provide one quote um, that I like a lot that kind of maybe gets at what we're talking about here. This is from John Piper. It's actually a book on sex, of all things. And, but his open to that book, he says this. I have a picture in my mind of the majesty of Christ like the sun at the center of the solar system of your life. The massive sun, 333,000 times the mass of the earth, holds all the planets in orbit, even little Pluto, 3.6 billion miles away. So it is with the supremacy of Christ in your life. All the planets of your life, your sexuality and desires, your commitments and beliefs, your aspirations and dreams, your attitudes and convictions, your habits and disciplines, your solitude and relationships, your labor and leisure, your thinking and feeling, all the planets of your life are held in orbit by the greatness and gravity and blazing brightness of the supremacy of Jesus Christ at the center of your life. If he ceases to be the bright, blazing, satisfying beauty at the center of your life, the planets will fly into confusion a hundred things will be out of control, and sooner or later they will crash into destruction. Okay? We don't want that to happen, which is why we gather together weekly to worship Christ, to help us see all of life in orbit around Him. And that's the purpose. And as we've talked about, through word, sacrament, prayer, the community of faith, there actually is a supernatural transformation that, that takes place as we gather together. Okay, so let's look at this. We, we've now heard the word, and he, here's, here's how this is going to work. Uh, we're not going to do the Lord's Supper today. We'll do that next time on April, March uh, 29th and, and following. So normally the order will be confession of faith, which is what we're about to do, followed by... Uh, the Lord's Supper. And so the, the thinking is that, that the Lord's Supper is a table, as we talked about last week, for the faithful, for those that have this faith to confess. And so we profess or confess our faith together, and then, we, and then we come to the table to receive, to feed on Jesus. 
but we're not going to do Lord's Supper. We will do this confession of faith. And we're going to, we're going to work our way through the Heidelberg Catechism. I know there's not everybody is, is from a Reformed um, tradition. And so the plan is to first work our way through the Heidelberg Catechism. And it's, it's, it's designed around a year of questions and answers. It's kind of a systematic way of going about our faith. So, uh, question, let's, uh, I'll read the question and you guys read the bold answer. What is your only comfort in life and death? I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has paid fully for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way, without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Okay. And so, then, following the very end, there's the benediction. Uh, The word literally means good word. You know, dictionary, right? Words, a bunch of words defined. Bene is the prefix for good. It's a good word. And in the Old Testament, uh, the priest would, would or, or, or leader would raise their arms to pronounce a word of blessing upon the people, and the people would extend their arms out in a posture of receiving. And, and so um, we're going to do that. L- let me say this too. Um, it's like the, the, a Presbyterian's worst nightmare to be stuck in this position for too long. Um, so you can put your hands down. I'll relieve you of that. Um, let me say this. We, we, cut, we, we have all sorts of little arenas in which we operate and live our lives. And, and here, here's, here's the point of the benediction. We, come to, we gather to worship. But then the benediction scatters us across Oklahoma City to not forget about everything that we experienced and did here, but to actually take it with us and to bring uh, the love of Christ to the arenas in which we live our lives. That's what's happening in this time of benediction. So, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us go forth to serve Oklahoma City and the world as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. You're dismissed.